This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. It is imperative you join Circus RRR, please. Radiotherapy land. It's 10 o'clock and it's not that cold outside. I don't think I've had a nice ride in. Um, so this is Nurse EpiPen on today. I'm hosting because malpractice, he didn't really say where he was going, but I think he's off scallywagging somewhere. So wherever you are, Dr. Mal, we're thinking of you and we're going to have such a powerful show today because we've got women on the panels, on the panel. So there's four of us and of course Kent doing the buttons. So the special people that we've got in the studio today, our regular is Dr G-Spot. Good Thank morning G-Spot. Thanks for having me Epi. <laughs> Wonderful to be here on an all women's show. <laughs> and then we've got Professor Jane Halliday who I've known personally for a very long time who's one of the most amazing women in Melbourne, who's passionate mm. about the health of babies and women. And Jane's been involved in a gazillion <laughs> research projects around Australia and has spoken internationally. And she's a big 
good old professor as well. So good morning, Jane. Good morning, EpiPen. And then next, Jane, is Dr. Stephanie Lidicott, who I have been blown over or blown away by um, what she's been telling us in the green room, who um, trained as an architect in New Zealand and has her own company but is an academic architect, and I'm not sure there's that many of them. <laughs> um, and she's particularly... I'm going to use the word passionate as well. Mm. Passionate about looking at designs of hospitals for children and adults who've had sort of mental issues or um, issues where they've obviously needed to be hospitalised. And she's also keen on supporting staff in those hospitals. So, morning, Stephanie. Good morning, FEP. Good. And then, least but not uh, last, is Dr. Panel Beta. We're all doctors in this room. I'm, I should be a doctor, EpiPen, really. Uh, Dr. Panel Beta, who's doing our buttons, he's uh, always brilliant to have on the show. And thank you for doing it this morning for us. Okay, so do we do the Dr. Doctor now? <laughs> doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a spot you're going to talk about something that you have found that's very I, interesting. I like to call this Dr G spots G spot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think we've all come across kids who we might maybe label as bad kids or they themselves come into my clinic and say I'm a bad kid. Has, have people come across that kids that are just really misbehaved and and maybe their parents are pulling their hair out? Yeah, I think they get it from their parents a bit. They're labelled as, God, you're, yeah. you're just the worst kid I've ever come across. Yeah, and, and I've been reading up on a Nature Reviews article by Fairchild et al, and it's all about conduct disorder. Have people heard about conduct disorder? Getting mm. some, some nodding but also some, some no's there. And conduct disorder is actually characterised by um, severe antisocial aggressive behaviours, including physical aggression, theft, property damage and violation of others' rights. So this is a very severe form of uh, disorder and actually 3% of kids can be diagnosed with conduct disorder. Mm. So the next time you see a bad kid, it might actually be a kid who is suffering with a mental health disorder called conduct disorder. And the reason we're even interested in this is because conduct disorder can um, often end up in um, an adult who is engaged with the criminal justice system. So that's why uh, Fairchild et al. in their review have really called upon people to be better at diagnosing this and better at treating it as well because we don't want these kids ending up as career criminals. So the next time you see a bad kid, you might actually think, this kid is suffering from a mental health issue called conduct disorder and really needs help. And in fact, we do have some really good treatments. But the thing is, most kids aren't getting it. They're just labelled as bad kids and, um, and disciplined really harshly and segregated from society. So they're not even given a chance. So how, how do they come to you? How, how do you differentiate between a normally healthy bad kid with one with a conduct disorder? It's a really good question, EpiPen, and I think our diagnostic criteria, again, is not particularly good on this. It's all about behaviours. But our research at the moment is showing that these kids actually have different-looking brains from other kids. And so I think we need to be doing more kind of biomarker tests, MRI testing, things like that, to identify who's got conduct disorder and who doesn't.
Do we want to over-medicalise some kids? Not at all. No, no. I think it would just be the 3% who really are um, who really are struggling and maybe come from really difficult backgrounds. Um, I'd like to say, it's J- Jane speaking here, I'd like to just add to this conversation. Please because do. It's now recognised that up to 4% of children have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and one of the manifestations of that is conduct, is conduct disorder um, and there are now quite good diagnostic processes in place for helping to... It's a multidisciplinary approach because there's many, many um, potential aspects of having this condition but I think... Yeah, so. I'm going to be talking about this later, a bit more later on, I think. But just it is certainly uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is something that can be manifest in just some simple behavioural problems at the sort of very lowest end of the spectrum. And so it's worth keeping that in mind too. Absolutely. Mm. FASD is definitely comorbid with conduct disorder as well as ADHD. So these are things that, you know, a kid who can't sit still, a kid who can't concentrate, they're really struggling in school, they should definitely be looked at and not just labelled as a bad kid Mm -hmm. and and shunted off because they may have an underlying medical condition, just Mm -hmm. as Jane was saying. Mm. So if we, if schools, so teachers might recognise something, where, where do they go? What do they, what can they do? Absolutely. Absolutely. I suppose the first stop shop is the paediatrician, right? And then the paediatrician can make referrals onto, say, for example, psychologists, psychiatrists, etc. Um, a very important part of conduct disorder treatment is actually involving the parents um, so that the child receives consistent feedback on their behaviour, whether it be positive or negative feedback. So if the child is engaging in behaviour that they shouldn't be doing, for example, it's about redirecting them to the more positive behaviour and also reinforcing when they do do the right thing. Because I I think this can be a very frustrating disorder for parents and they can be pulling their hair out and it's really hard for kids to to uh, receive positive feedback sometimes when their parents are so frustrated. So I think you might have to go one step <clears throat> before the paediatrician is your GP. Absolutely. Because you Sorry can't just... That. No, no, it's fine. You just can't go straight to a, to a paediatrician mm. but they're the... The, the holders of all the people to refer to. So, oh, wow, very interesting and good um, overlap there. Yeah, with... just looking to raise awareness for conduct disorder and as well as James saying fetal alcohol, um, fetal alcohol disorder as well. Really important. Okay, so moving along, um, I think we might start with what Jane Halliday has to offer. So, Jane is an epidemiologist. Mm -hmm. So we were having a bit of a joke out in the um, green room about what is an epidemiologist. So, Jane, over to you. What's an epidemiologist? Well, it's not about the skin, which a lot of people (laughs) think it is, epidermis. (laughs) And it's not about epidemics, but it's derived (laughs) from the word epidemic. And, in fact, epidemiologists like to study the distribution and determinants of disease. So it's all about sort of tracking what's going on in the population and often infectious disease is is studied often by epidemiologists, of course. Um, But also we look at all sorts of um, conditions that uh, are common within the population. It's about setting up a a rigorous study. We're very interested in methodology and how things are... Uh, how, how studies are, are set up, basically, and analysed. We quite like looking at numbers. <laughs> so Jane is an epidemiologist. Epide- I, I've never had trouble saying that before. <laughs> <laughs> an epidemiologist, and she has an honorary professor position at the University of Melbourne in the Department of Paediatrics. 
She's the Group Leader of Reproductive Epidemiology at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and has a PhD, back, got that back in 1995 and has over 30 years of experience in the field looking at birth defects and spina bifida and a whole list of things. She has over 200 peer review research publications which are incredibly hard to um, get because you have to be incredibly bright and rigorous in your research to get these publications. And in a nutshell, her main interests are in human genetics and epidemiology. I think we are extremely honoured to have Jane on our show today. And she's going to talk about two studies that she's just recently published. Uh, One is looking at what do pregnant women and their partners want to know about genetic testing while pregnant or pre-pregnancy advice. And the second one is what she's just touched on is her research looking at um, what people are drinking alcohol during pregnancy and the impact on the baby of a mother that's um, exposed her baby to some alcohol during that time. So, Jane, mm. take it away. So mm. let's do the pregnant women and pre, pre-counselling with mm-hmm. genetic um, information. And mm-hmm. where do you start with something like that? What's, what's <laughs> well, we, we, we've been keeping track as epidemiologists of um, all the prenatal diagnostic testing that's going on in the state. That's You may have heard of amniocentesis and chorion villus sampling. So they take samples directly from the developing fetus very early in pregnancy sort of within the first first uh, couple of months well no sorry cvs is at 12 weeks and amnio is at about 16 weeks so it's three to four months but early in pregnancy and they take the fetal cells and basically it's to look at chromosome differences in the in the developing baby and the one that everyone seems to know about is is down syndrome which has an extra chromosome 21 normally you have two of each type of chromosome 23 pairs one from each parent but with down syndrome there's one extra chromosome and that's traditionally been what these tests have been looking for as chromosome differences and it was by looking at fetal cells down a microscope and you could see these big changes but what's happened in recent times is the technology such that you can zoom in on the chromosomes and you can actually look at things that are sub-microscopic. They're tiny, tiny changes in the DNA, which is what the chromosomes are made up of. And these tiny changes can themselves cause quite substantial problems in the developing child. And so now this new technology, which is called microarray, chromosome microarrays, they that's used routinely on these amnio and CVS samples. And that's good because it can pick up all sorts of things that, <clears throat> that once upon a time weren't able to be picked up. But it can also pick up differences that have with them a degree of uncertainty. So, hang on. little step. <coughs> <laughs> so um, it can pick up differences that... Uh, Maybe there's a sort of a, it's not known what the outcome is going to be. So, for instance, if it's a very small difference in <clears throat> chromosome 15, let's say um, 10% of people with this difference might have some sort of intellectual disability or autism is a, is a classic one. But 80 to 90% of people with this same difference have no problems at all. 
So mm. does the mother want to know, or do the parents want to know this piece of information about the fetus? And I guess that's this uncertainty that we've been worried about. So do you want me to tell you about So I keep talking here? Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. because I'll tell you the study we did. Looking yes, about, yes. Yeah. So, but, things, so just maybe going back to the CVS and anamnio, what, yeah. what, is it, do you want, can you talk about the risk of um, a miscarriage when somebody has those tests or mm-hmm. are they safe or yep. what? Given that I've had one of each, I can, <laughs> I can give you personal <laughs> advice, but... Well, they, it depends very much on how good the operator is and so the experience of the, oh, wow. of the obstetrician doing it. But basically they're now considered to be extremely risk-free. Yeah. I mean, they are invasive. They're called invasive diagnostic tests and there's not very many of them done anymore because the screening tests are so much better. So people have the mothers have a blood test and these blood tests can pick up all sorts of things now and they're, they're much better, but there's still... Women who go on to have these diagnostic tests, if they have an increased risk screening result or if they maybe have a baby that's showing up with an abnormality on ultrasound and they want to look more deeply at the information that the screening tests don't look for. So there's still a couple of thousand of these diagnostic tests every year. There used to be five, 6,000. So the numbers have dropped because of the much better screening tests, which mean women don't have to go on and have these invasive tests. But I mean, I think it's at a fragile time in the pregnancy, often sort of 12 weeks for CVS, and so there are miscarriages after CVS, but you could say that they may have happened anyway. Correct. And it's very difficult to actually say what's due to the test and what's would have mm. happened anyway so if if just if we could talk about a woman getting pregnant now mm-hmm. what what are they offered if you're a, say you're a 30 year old so not in a high risk age group mm-hmm. uh, a 30 year old coming going to her obstetrician for the first time what would be advised as a as an, a, some tests looking for the any abnormalities in their baby I like to think she'd been given our decision aid <laughs> because there nice. are so many options that women can now, or couples can consider um, the, in terms of screening. So there's the combined first trimester screening test, which is where they have an ultrasound at about 10, 11 weeks, which looks at the neck of the fetus, the back of the neck of the fetus, and a measurement is made, and that is then combined with a blood test result which looks at some biochemistry and so that's why it's called combined first trimester screening and that has about a 90% chance of if there's a fetus with Down syndrome it's got about a 90% chance of, of detecting an increased risk result and then that woman would be then um, suggested as to go ahead and have a one of these amnio or CVS, the diagnostic follow-up test, because it's only going to be right um, sometimes. It's an increased risk, not a 100% diagnostic test. Mm-hmm. So she could have the combined first trimester and she can have that pretty much for free. She have to pay. There's a few costs associated with it. Or if she wants to pay up, she can have what's now called a non-invasive um, prenatal test, cell-free DNA testing, which is another blood test of the mother, but it has a 99% chance of picking up an affected fetus. Of but it's, all sorts of diseases, not just Down well, syndrome? Well, mainly Down syndrome, but it can also pick up other chromosome differences, but uh, only the major ones, although it's getting better and better at picking up these smaller differences and the uncertainty is rising 
and it's picking up chromosomes, um, six difference chromosomes in the sex differences in the sex chromosomes. Sorry, <laughs> and some people are you know may not want to have that information. Uh, so you can have a non-invasive test, um, NIPT. People are talking about that a lot, but you have to pay four hundred dollars for that. But it's available from all sorts of companies, and I think it's being advertised a lot. So you can still go down um, having a test in second trimester, a maternal serum screening test in second trimester. Uh, that's not as good as the first trimester one. So there are a number of options. We can just have ultrasound. Um, so, yes, people have to make choices. Mm. Jane, oh. you mentioned earlier a decision aid, and you hope mm-hmm. that women had a decision aid. Could mm-hmm. you talk to the listeners about what that is and where they might um, obtain that? Well, we're just turning one that we've we've got on the Murdoch Institute website. <laughs> um, we're just turning. We've just received some funding to turn that into a web-based app. So that's come. That's will be available by the end of this year. But going back to the first study, looking at uncertainty with these chromosome microarrays, what we did there was we provided a decision aid to a group of people that were going ahead and having amnio and CVS, and we gave them a decision tool this booklet um, that allowed people to weigh up whether they wanted the uncertain information or just the certain information. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know what to expect, but we'd been people around us be saying, oh, everyone wants to know everything, you know, everyone all that. But to cut a long story short, it turned out that about 40% of women only wanted the very targeted information. Mm-hmm. So 60%, you know, they were prepared to take on board this uncertainty and uh, but forty percent didn't want to have anything other than the information about conditions like Down syndrome, where it was mm-hmm. really well understood. So we used this decision aid to help, or we gave a decision aid to people to help think about weighing up their options. So they mm-hmm. think about their values uh, initially. You sort of ask them questions, and they provide a sort of weighting as to their. Um, what they place on these values about aspects of testing and mm. and, and whether, then and whether they would have a termination yes things like that or the cost of living with children yes yes yeah very mm. much sort of this and and so this new one that we're doing for um, the prenatal screening um, is has the same sort of approach and it's you know behind the scenes the c- computer algorithm is provides you at the end with a sort of weighting as you're leaning towards having this sort of test or away from that sort of test and it takes into account how pregnant you are at the time of filling out the decision aid and um, and your values in particular so mm. yes mm. Were you surprised at those results Jane, the 60-40? Yeah. We were and um, no, no, not me personally I wasn't <laughs> but I think uh, I think some people have been very surprised by it. And unfortunately, uh, although this study has been published um, last year, it's we haven't been able to set in place a service that provides this sort of tiered approach to providing information. Um, there's concern about withholding genetic or genomic information from people. Um, so the laboratories who do all the analysis, they will have this information... Um, and if they're not being able to pass this on to people, uh, maybe there'll be ramifications down the track. It's also the actual logistic, 
logistical problems. I mean, like we gave women this decision aid and we did it in a research setting. So out there in the real world where there's, you know, <laughs> thousands of women in different settings, how do we get them all to have this decision aid and then get the information back to the lab? But, you know, we're, we're working, we're, going to, we're not going to give up. And I think it's, it's relevant to not just amnio and CVS, which are not so common, but it's going to happen with this non-invasive testing that I was telling you about where they're getting more and more into sequencing the DNA. And, and so this sort of uncertainty is going to just increase with the technologies getting more sophisticated. And it's also going on in the paediatric setting where children are having microarray testing. But it's much easier there because you've got a child that looks and feels and perhaps speaks, and, but with the foetus you haven't got any of that. You've just got this you know, in little thing which you can't really get a good handle on. Mm, mm. Um, Jane, was there any, I suppose, difference between the people who did and didn't choose um, to, to... who chose to sit with uncertainty and who didn't? Like, was there a type of person who was more likely to sit with uncertainty? I have to remember which way it went. Um, there were some differences, and women that had taken a longer time to get pregnant... Uh, were more likely to want more information, as were women who had unplanned pregnancies. So we sort of hypothesised around that, that women that took a long time to get pregnant may have been worried there was something wrong. Um, and women who fell pregnant in without planning to may have been drinking or smoking or doing something that they... Um, were worried about that might have harmed their fetus, so they wanted to have this more extensive testing. So that was one characteristic, was the sort of how length of time to take them to get pregnant. Um, also, ethnicity was an issue, um, where um, women of Asian-born background were more likely to want extensive information, which we couldn't really explain, but um, it came up in the statistical analysis and... We also found that people that wanted just the targeted information had had increased risk screening results, so they already knew they were at risk for something like Down syndrome, and they were choosing the very targeted information. So, yes, there were... There were because of such a rigorous epidemiological study... <laughs> go, Jane! <laughs> we, go to, we were able to look at these sort of factors and, yeah. Mm. And, and what, religious backgrounds? But didn't come into it. Didn't wow. come into it. No, it we was asked across about the religiosity board. and right. Mm. Oh, that surprises yeah. me. Yeah, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we might go to a short break before we get on to your next project. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. So the second part of um, our super-duper guest, Jane Halliday, um, she's going to talk about, um, briefly, her research looking at drinking alcohol while pregnant mm-hmm. before, so while at the time of conception and during and mm-hmm. then maybe allow mum to have a few at, whilst she's, when she's had her baby. No? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Jane, tell she's us, about, words it. Tell us about your study. What's it called? Aqua. Aqua, which means asking questions about alcohol. Mm. So, yes, this is a study that's been going on for quite a few years. We're following up the six-year-olds right now. 
but um, I, I can. We've just had published our work on the one and two year olds. So what we did was we recruited about fifteen hundred women in just normal antenatal clinics at about seven hospitals around Melbourne who were not at any high-risk category for drinking, but we just wanted to record what was the sort of common levels of drinking in our population in, amongst pregnant women. And uh, so that's we designed this study to specifically ask questions about alcohol. Would they have had any education or known that there was a risk about alcohol? Well, we hope so, but you know, yes, we yes. were we were we didn't do any at the time of no no recruitment. We, we were just going in to find out what was happening on happening out there, mm-hmm. and I mean the first thing we discovered was that about forty percent of pregnancies were unplanned, and a lot of women had been drinking at the, around the time of conception. <laughs> And EpiPen is pointing at herself right now. <laughs> Unplanned pregnancy, EpiPen. Well, I was hoping to get pregnant, but I'd had a lot of gin and tonics around the time. <laughs> I, I find that helps with the conception. Really, don't no, you stop think? it. Stop it. Sorry, sorry Jane, terrible. please go on. So, no, um, no, this, I'm being funny, and I know this is a serious yes. topic. It is very serious. Yes. Well, it, it, is, it is a big issue, and I guess uh, one of our big aims has been to look at what impact this early, very early potentially binge drinking around the time of conception might be having on the baby. and But we were also interested in in uh, lower levels of drinking, sort of just, oh, I just have a glass now and then. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of women, we found about 30% or 28% of women um, did continue to drink throughout pregnancy, but albeit at sort of lowish levels mostly. Uh, and a lot of the women who were drinking early before they knew they were pregnant, stopped. About 80% of women stopped. So um, we had this really interesting combination of drinking patterns across pregnancy, and we interviewed them, um, or we gave them a questionnaire in the first trimester, and we asked them about that pre-pregnancy drinking and very early drinking. And then we asked them all sorts of questions. It wasn't just about drinking. It was about what they were eating and, you know, everything you can think of. And, and stratified for first baby, second baby, yeah, et cetera. We, yeah, we found all family history and mm-hmm. all sorts of demographic mm-hmm. information. And the whole of the second questionnaire, which was in second trimester, um, or a lot of it was about nutrition. So we didn't ask them about what they were eating in the first trimester because they're probably all feeling sick and not eating too much. So we waited till second trimester and asked them about <gasps> asked them about nutrition. And um, and then the third pre- the third questionnaire, which was in the third trimester, was a lot of that was about how the pregnancy had you know how healthy they'd been. And then we followed them up at one year of age and at two years of age uh, with questionnaires asking about various aspects of the child's development and mother's reporting. But m- most importantly, we've brought them in f- to look at them. So um, when they were one, we brought in a subset of children, about 500, I think. We couldn't afford to do more than that because funding was... NHMRC funding was, was to bring in about 500 of these children to have a, a, face, a picture of their face a 3D picture of their face. And that's because it's known that heavy alcohol affects facial development. So this is heavy, chronic heavy, risky drinking. Um, and we these people were not in this category at all, but we thought it would be interesting to do these 3D measures of their face. So these <clears throat> little one-year-olds came in and they had these funny caps put on their heads and had to sit there under the lights on their mum's lap <laughs> and have their photos taken. And um, there was a bit of... They quite enjoyed it. 
mothers did anyway. <laughs> Went home with a nice 3D picture of their child. And then um, at two years we had another subset, about 600, were brought in over a whole year. We recruited about 600 of these children and they came in for a Bailey's test, which is a two- to three-hour clinical psychological assessment um, or neurodevelopmental assessment of cognition and movement and um, um, anyway, these, all these domains that measure a child's development. And normally cost the parents quite a lot, so they were happy to bring them in, <laughs> have these Bailey's assessments done by trained psychologists. So can I just interrupt there and ask a question? So when babies are born, um, as you would know, all the um, fissures, the sagittal fissures in mm-hmm. their skull are all um, relatively soft. soft. Mm-hmm. So, And then they, f- they form and fuse at 12 months. Is that why you started the first one at 12 months? Um, so what this yeah, facial... Well, probably. Um, we were just told by the plastic... <laughs> People that know about facial yeah, development. I would imagine. It, I think. I think at twelve <laughs> yes, months. You sought expert advice, Jane. We did. Yes. Yeah, I think and at twelve months, yes, there's you won't get earliest, ma- yes, many right. facial changes, skull changes after yeah, that. Yeah. So yes, it was. It was considered that one year of age would be a, a good sort of first look. Yep. Um, but <clears throat> all the sort of type of differences we were looking for, which are in the mid face, um, would have been um, set in place very early in fetal development when the neural crest sort of folds up and the embryo is first forming. And to cut a very long story short, um, what we found using measuring 70,000 data points on the face using this 3D photography, someone did it. Um, well, that's uh, some very, um, <laughs> a very skilled PhD uh, student. So we um, and a group in Belgium. We were collaborating with a group in Belgium. Um, Harry Matthews was the student, and I had a blank moment. Sorry, Harry, but I think he's in Belgium, so he won't be listening. <laughs> but no, very, very, very clever student mm. did this, and uh, he uh, found that there were these submicroscopic, not visible to the naked eye, but very significant not very but significant differences in the mid face so the the tip of the nose the lips and the the mid face which is what you see in the fully blown fetal alcohol spectrum disorder they have a smooth philtrum which is the bit between the nose and the upper lip and they have a very thin upper lip and they have small eyes and so the differences that were seen in children exposed to any amount of alcohol so it wasn't just the ones who were drinking binge early or heavy later or it was any alcohol had this submicroscopic or invisible <laughs> to the naked eye change in their mid-face. And we don't know if this means anything. I say that very quickly because we haven't linked this to any of the neurodevelopmental measures. And these children are all doing pretty well, basically, but... Who knows, maybe we actually um, are reducing our child's IQ by one or two points. I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm not scaremongering here, but but the point is alcohol is definitely, according to our research, having an effect on that sort of closing of the um, the neural tube or the, the parts of the body that make up. Um, the middle face mm-hmm. and whether that's linked to brain development or not it still remains to be seen and it 
but I think it was it's been a very interesting finding and and attracted a lot of attention <laughs> needless to say yeah. and we're now got as I said we've got the six year olds they're coming in they're having MRIs and they're having another 3D picture and another um, oh, another neuro, neurodevelopmental assessment suitable for a six year old so mm. you know we have to watch this space but and your bottom line is well the bottom line is is plan your pregnancy <laughs> no um obviously that's not practical for a lot of people but i think you know when thinking when you could get pregnant you should be you should i don't even like using the word should it's wise to to eat well um to not smoke not drink to take folate you know there's a lot of messages for women who um are in a situation where they're not on contraception and they could get pregnant um, to think very carefully about what they're doing to themselves and um, in terms of these these particular risk factors. Risk for factors. Yeah. Mm. Uh, thank you very much. Very interesting mm. topic indeed. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Okay, back in Triple R, and we have Dr. G Spot. We've got Dr. Stephanie Lidicott, who is an architect. We've got Professor Jane Halliday, and your host this morning is Epi, Dr. Epi Penn. <laughs> just elevated myself. Um, so, Jane, you just had one little small caveat that you wanted to announce to the listeners. Well, I, I just wanted to, I guess, reassure people that if they have unwittingly or even wittingly had, had a drink in the early stages of pregnancy... Um, you know, I think it's just important to to stop drinking, but not to worry, not to be assured that, you know, we have no evidence that there's going to be any long-term effects at all. And uh, I think it's just to stop if you can. Yep. That's really the, the main message that Thank you. to get out there. Thank you. Now we're having um, uh, Dr. Stephanie Lidicote. Um, speak. Um, why don't you tell us about yourself rather than me banging on on what I've written here? Wonderful. S- yeah, go ahead. Thanks so much, EpiPen. Um, so I've trained as an architect, but um, I'm currently working as an academic, um, both at the University of Melbourne and at Swinburne University. And I'm very interested in the design of built environments to support well-being within healthcare settings. So that is the design of the environments of, of hospitals, healthcare facilities and mental health facilities, really across the lifespan, so from children right through to older adults. Now, I became really interested in this because I think that the built environment has the potential to change how we feel. And we have all walked into environments that immediately make us feel wonderful and we feel relaxed and we feel comfortable and we feel at home. Often wellness spas are a great example of this. I was just thinking the triple R station then as you were saying. (laughs) (laughs) Now look, conversely, we've all walked into environments where we feel anxious and we feel on edge. And hospitals are often examples of this. Now, if we imagine that we're walking into a hospital, we've got perhaps a very unwell child, it's an unplanned visit, maybe um, we're in suicidal distress or we've had some kind of mental health breakdown and we're arriving in an environment that is very triggering, that is anxiety-producing, we don't know where to go, they're labyrinthine, they're clinical, they have that unusual smell about them and it can be incredibly confronting. So my research aims to understand 
the more supportive aspects of the built environment and how we could be designing uh, future healthcare spaces in a way that's more supportive, that's more welcoming and that contributes more effectively to recovery. And how have you done that? Uh, so I'm here today to talk about a recent ARC linkage project um, that I'm the research fellow on. We're interested in the design of paediatric hospital environments. So we did a very extensive four-year-long post-occupancy evaluation of two Melbourne hospitals. So first we looked at the Royal Children's Hospital and we looked at the Monash Children's Hospital. And so through a mixed method approach, we were trying to understand the ways in which the built environment was supporting the needs of the people who inhabit the building, um, but also how it could be designed better in the future so that we could have some tangible design guidance for architects, government design agencies to design more supportive healthcare environments. So we, we did interviews, we talked to the architects, we talked to the briefing team, we talked to the clinicians. Um, we did focus groups with children and young people, their families and the staff who work at these hospitals. Um, we did about 105 hours of spatial observations where we sat in the spaces looking at how people use them, what are they doing, what are their activities, who are they with. Um, and then we ran um, a series of surveys as well, six different surveys across all of the stakeholders, so the users of the environment, to understand what was important to them, what were they noticing, what was missing. And so from that, we have developed a set of design guidance for use of designing more supportive paediatric environments. Absolutely fantastic. Mm. So I've, um, I have a friend who is an interior designer who was doing hospital designs, Great. and she was telling me how you can't this is quite a while ago, she was telling me how you can't have curtains that are browny or yellowy colours because they remind people of poo. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't have other things that are triggers for things that might be body fluids or mm -hmm. things, environments. That's a tiny little um, example of something that was a conversation that I had. But what you're talking about is so important mm -hmm. I think and I think when we had a chat about coming onto the show you were going to talk about what happens at the children's so you observe mm -hmm. for example we all know about the children's hospital well we do in the room um, but do you want to talk about the meerkats and mm -hmm. the, at mm -hmm. the um, fish tank? So what's really interesting at the Royal Children's Hospital is that it has a series of features and attractions that are not historically part of a children's hospital typology. So we have a meerkat enclosure, we have an aquarium, we have sculptures, very, very large sculptures often. We have um, what's called a Starlight Express room. So that is an activity room that is just for children. No procedures, no nurses, no doctors allowed. It's just for children to be children. Um, and all of these inclusions into the hospital um, give the impression to the young people visiting that there are lots of exciting things to do, there are lots of attractions, there are opportunities to meet other children and to socialise with other children. So that's really shifting the attitudes and the perceptions about the children's hospital environment to be one more about socialising and about agency and empowerment um, and incite more of a desire to return rather than being something that is very frightening and that is very alien and that is not for me. So we found that that was a very important part of the um, children's hospital environment. 
conversely, we also looked at what the needs were of the parents. And our study indicates that the parent lounges on the on the wards are really, really important. So for many families, they may be living on the ward for a very long time, sometimes months, while their, their child is unwell. And the spaces that the parents have to occupy are either their child's bedroom, um, the corridor, or sometimes a parent lounge. And we found that the parent lounges, so this is a kind of communal lounge and kitchen space for the parents, was an opportunity for them to avail themselves of peer support, to meet other parents who were going through similar experiences, to share tips and advice. And this was really important for them, gave them an opportunity to feel like they were contributing something in a world that was governed by schedules and by the doctors and nurses telling them what to do and them falling in line. So the opportunity to be able to share some advice, to prepare a meal together and have a sense of normality um, and to connect with other parents was really important. So the implication then for how we design is we know that this is a really important space. So we know that each ward needs to have one of these. We know that it needs to have views outdoors because that's what parents found, you know, gave them a reprieve. We know that it needs to have a communal dining table so people can have a, a family meal together, but also to to meet with other parents and talk with them. Um, having a private space to have a phone call. Little things like this that the parents don't have anywhere else on the ward and can be incredibly difficult. It, little things, just opportunities to talk about the normality of life about how you do your laundry and how you fold things and it gave them a moment to just be parents and to talk about the humdrum things that in some ways mean very little but in some ways mean an awful lot. I think you also told me a bit about the meerkats, Mm -hmm. um, how often they're looked at or who sits with them and Mm. how successful they've been because they were very... um, expensive investments. Yes, yes, they certainly were. Look, what our study found, which was very interesting, was that through our observations, we noticed that the children and the families were actually spending very little time looking at the meerkats. So they would come along, they might look for 30 seconds or so. Um, So very little time, but the amount that they talked about the meerkats (laughs) suggested that they were incredibly important. So our study shows that It's not about the time spent at one of these attractions that is important. It's the fact that they are there, that there is this opportunity. It's an attraction. It changes the perception of the hospital environment. Um, So it is indeed worth the investment. um, And it's not about the time spent, but it's about the opportunity to, to fuel the imagination. Triple R, not for everyone. For anyone. Wow, what a show. What a, a tour de force with gorgeous women in the studio, mm-hmm. wherever you are, Dr. Mal. Um, I hope you can see that yeah, we've held the floor. Definitely his loss. It was <laughs> an absolutely amazing show. And in summary, I just think we've got some great people helping us have healthy babies and also people helping us um, work in the background of having wonderful de-stressing environments in hospitals. And thank you very much for coming in, Dr Stephanie Lidicott and Professor Jane Halliday and our usual uh, 
uh, regular is uh, Dr G Spot. It's her G Spot. <laughs> thank, yeah, Dr G Spot. Yeah, Dr G Spot. Thank you for having and me, Abby Penn. Pleasure, and and thank you very much, Dr Panel Beta, for looking after the panels. So, what a great um, show today, and thank you all for coming in. Thank you for having us. Thank you. <laughs> okay. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.